0: Welcome to Musing the Mysteries, a podcast by Barney Wiggett. Let's go, let's go. Welcome back to our rant through the book of James on the topic of the clash between Christianity and classism. I mean, it's my opinion. What I'm saying in this series of podcasts is that it's my opinion that James is primary message is that the kind of Christianity that classifies people in a sort of caste-like way is in no way a biblical Christianity. So we're going to start back at uh, verse 12 of chapter 1 and move on through into chapter 2 a little bit. So let's just begin. Verse 12, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord Jesus has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, "God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does anyone tempt any uh, uh, nor does he tempt anyone, <laughs> but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So I, I mentioned this before in an earlier episode that I think the testing and tempting that James refers to applies to all of God's tests and temptations that we you know that when we undergo trials. but I think uh, more than anything else James has on his mind social, economic and class issues throughout his entire epi- his entire epistle <clears throat> um, I think he's talking to the already poor and already lower class, uh, and the formerly rich or the newly poor. Um, I think James is trying to say this, God is not trying to harm you, but perfect you. Don't get lured into stealing or lying or cheating your way into a better economic social situation. You you know, you, you may be tempted to complain or oppress others to get what you want, but don't do it. If you're experiencing financial trials or you're the victim of social class inequities, God is still on your side, I think James is saying. And nothing but good comes from God. And don't get baited. Don't get enticed or seduced into bad behavior, even though you're in pain socially, economically, or in whatever way. Be patient. God works in all things for the good of those who love Him. And uh, when you don't get what you want, uh, what you think you deserve, uh, it's easy to either to take matters into your own hands or to medicate yourself so that you, you're not going to feel it so much, right? So we're apt in, in our culture to run to something that makes us feel better. We always want to feel better. Take the pain away. But that usually creates another problem, a, par- a problem of possible addiction or shame James is saying, don't go there, go to God. Uh, and then James is about to refer to another form of uh, self-medication when we're, when we're hurting and our needs aren't being met as we think they should be. A popular medication in our culture and our day is anger, and in his day apparently as well. Because he says in the next, very next verse, verse 19, My dear brothers and sisters... Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. So like I said, I, I think the context here is socioeconomic discrimination, classism, And James is telling them to be patient instead of self-medicating. Did I say patient? Yeah. Instead of self-medicating, and in this case, don't self-medicate with anger. You know, and maybe he's referring to anger at God for not meeting your needs, or anger at other people for not getting, you know, letting you to the head of the line before you know before them, or with the world for conspiring against you, but. It's later in chapter four that James is going to blatantly tie anger and classism together, and we'll have to wait for that. But let me just read a piece of that, the verse, verses one and two of chapter four. What causes fights, James says, and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have. So you kill, you covet, but you can't get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. So we'll get to that. Down the road, but it, it it could be that anger, the anger that James is talking about here, is the kind that comes from not getting what they think they deserve. So, so many people get angry at God or angry at anybody in their way to getting what they want. And so, I, I guess I'm encouraging you not to read James like the Book of Proverbs as just here's this topic and then here's another topic. But I think it all kind of fits together. This. Socioeconomic classism and trials related to that, and how we then cope with those trials. Uh, uh, and one self medicating uh, component is is anger. Well, let's go on to verse 22. Uh, Don't do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do it, not forgetting what, they, what they've what they heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So don't just hear it, but do what the Word says." And and it's in the next verses that he's gonna he's gonna share two main categories of what the Bible says to do and how to do what it says. And I think this is something that people often miss when they're reading this book. They think the things that James tells them to do to do what the Bible says is just kind of a, a theoretical. You know, just do what it says in general, just obey it in general, but. Yeah, do everything Christians are supposed to do, and that's true, but we should do everything that we're supposed to do. I think James has some specific sets of things on his mind. Out of all the moral issues he could have referred to about doing what it says to do, he goes right back to socioeconomic issues, right back to class, right back to social class. So it seems to me that this whole chapter, uh, chapter one, is tied together by this theme of money and material possessions and the social class that goes along with what little or what much, how much you have. So let's go on to verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious, that is, you know, Christians, right? And yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So please notice that James circles back to tie it all together to talk about how the haves and the have-nots relate to each other. And so this theme that I'm talking about is the backdrop for the kind of Christianity that this apostle James is, he learned from his half-brother Jesus. The classless kind, the kind where rich and poor can look at each other in the eye and be brothers. The kind where the haves and the have-nots can can, coexist in mutuality, where each uh, person from whatever class has something to share with Somebody from the other class, whatever that is. So, classless Christianity is—it's it, not a one-way street where the wealthy paternal paternalistically give to the poor, and the poor have nothing to give to the to the rich. That's not the way it works. It's the kind of faith classless Christianity is—the kind that creates community, a community of mutuality out of every social and economic strata, where. We, we know everybody is made of the same stuff, and so everybody has something to offer everybody else. Remember how in the Bible, in Proverbs, we're told that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And, and since we know that everyone is made out of the same stuff, and in this case, this metaphor of iron, it's not like one class of people do all the sharpening, and all the other classes just exist just to be sharpened. No, everyone in every class has something to contribute to the sharpening of everybody else. Uh, it's probable that James wrote more than a decade before the Gospels were published—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—and if that's true, what that means is first that that he heard his half brother Jesus speak about a classless religion, and even more than that, secondly. He saw Jesus embody it. I talked about this in the introduction about how he he didn't bring people you know home from the soccer team, uh, from you know from the upper class, but he kept bringing people from the street home, and 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 the way that he related to all classes of people uh, was exemplary to to James and his brothers, even though James wasn't a believer at that time. Well, he tells us in this. Uh, in the epistle here, to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. So when we think about the world polluting us, I think where do our minds usually turn? You know, uh, we think of. I think at least my mind often goes to private immorality, to to be sure to not be polluted by the uh, private immoral actions and activities and attitudes of the world. But but what about social immorality? And I think that's what. James has on his mind as much as anything. In other words, there are, there are many toxins in the air besides sexual sin or using bad language or drinking too much. The pollutants that we inhale every day in the world, they also include the toxins of what? Pride, power, greed, graft, self-indulgence, um, you know, sometimes uh, when I go to speak to groups to teach the Word, I, I give them a, a, what I call a 10-second test. And the test uh, comprises of, I ask them to write as many evidences of salvation, personal salvation, salvation through Jesus, uh, as, as that they can in rapid succession. And what I found, and then I just give them 10 seconds to do it, and then I say, stop. Stop. And what I found is that few, very few people include any reference to how we treat the poor or to social justice issues or to social class issues. Usually their lists are, are, are about private purity issues. And social responsibility seem to be kind of, I don't know, non-issues for a lot of Christians, especially those with a more conservative bent to their spirituality. And i just so you know, I'm I, I have a conservative theology. I I believe in in the, in the the uh, inspiration of Scripture and all the conservative issues of, of Jesus being God and salvation being by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. But but I think a lot a lot of conservative Christians, evangelicals uh leave out some of the social responsibilities in our in our sanctification but james he shares two deal breaking issues at least in these these two verses how we talk and how we treat the most vulnerable orphans and widows and like i said i think a lot of christians seem to focus most of their walk on things to avoid uh, it's kind of a sin management sort of Christianity, sort of a defensive religion um, and and they work real hard at trying not to be worldly and, and 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 trust me, I know biblical sanctification includes a lot of things to avoid, but that's not all there is they they a lot of Christians might not smoke or chew or kiss girls who do, but They make very little difference in the world and very little chance of leaving it a better place than they found it, because they don't engage in the second thing that Jesus said. He said, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, might, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And then he went on to talk about who that neighbor is. Well, the first thing James says in these two verses is uh, to keep a tight rein on your tongue. I mean, and of course, that's kind of defensive too. You know, don't say stupid things to one another, and if you can't stop saying stupid things, it might be a clue that you need you need to be converted because converted people uh, don't routinely, typically, customarily speak bad to one another or of one another, and and he elaborates on this in in chapter three. And I'll, I'm going to make some comments on it when we get there, but suffice to say now that when I, when he talks about this, I think his repeated reference to how we speak throughout the epistle, how we speak to one another, it is at least opaically related to uh, class distinctions. I, what I mean by that is the way the well-healed and the no-healed, that is H-E-E-L-E-D, uh, the way the wealthy and the poor talk about one another should reflect a mutual respect and honor versus demeaning and, and, self, and, and disrespect, I should say. Uh, and that goes uh, both ways, from the poor to about the rich and the rich about the poor. But for now, James says, don't put each other down. But instead of that, what do you do? Take care of widows and orphans. So let's talk about widows and orphans a bit two of the most vulnerable people in a society are widows and orphans uh, in any society but particularly in a developing country and in first century society i mean they aren't the only two that we are commanded by god to care for but all those who those two represent widows and orphans in other words represent everyone who is uncared for or uncovered everyone who is You know, destitute and without means of escaping their destitution. And and, you know, James, you've read the Old Testament, right? James didn't make this widows and orphans thing up. I mean, this wasn't something new. It was throughout the entire Hebrew Bible. Widows and orphans, immigrants, and the poor are mentioned together. Those four, widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor are mentioned so often that some people call them the quartet of the vulnerable in the old testament and in an agrarian culture those four groups in particular they don't have any socioeconomic clout and most people in James day you know lived at a subsistence level and in the event of famine or invasion of a foreign power or social marginalization uh, for one reason or another they they were they were never many days away from starvation Today, we might expand that quartet, those four, to include you know, groups like refugees uh, or minorities in a majority culture or migrant workers or single parents or the homeless or the unborn. And James, it talks about real religion and it's it's not only watching your mouth, but it's also watching out for people who need special help, the least, the last, and the lost, widows and orphans he talks about. Um, you think about it, it, justice in this way. God is just. And it, it, throughout the Bible, he's called a just God. And if we want to be like him, we have to be just also. Um, and when the powerful take advantage of the weak, God takes the side of the weak. In other words, he's for the exploited against the exploiter for the victim against the victimizer in the same way that a father would be for, you know, he would be if his older brother, his older son, I should say, was abusing his his younger brother, the stronger son always beats, you know, up the younger son and the weaker one. He would be for the weaker one. He would come to the aid of the weaker one. I, I said this before, but that God is, he's partial to the poor in the same way a firefighter is partial to a house that's on fire. Um, and just a couple of key Old Testament passages that James would have been totally familiar with. Deuteronomy twenty four seventeen says, do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice. And the alien, by the way, is the immigrant. Or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. So, you know Moses there is saying some of the most vulnerable and defenseless people in in a society are its immigrants and its orphans and as well as widows. The weak are typically taken advantage of by unscrupulous people looking for you know an easy mark. And, and you know what? If you turn to Deuteronomy 24 and you read the rest of that chapter, you're going to notice the company that the, you know purveyors of injustice keep uh, keeps uh, and in this case in Deuteronomy 24 right along with the people that deprive the immigrant and the fatherless of justice are idolaters people who lead blind people astray on the road can you imagine that taking a blind person and just leading them astray on purpose probably so you can rob them people also in that list are in that are right next to These, uh, those that deprive the alien and fatherless and widows are uh, people who have sex with animals or people that have sex with family members. I mean, I'm just saying. And when Moses is making a list of some of the most heinous things in the culture, he includes uh, injustice and, you know, a classlessness, or I should say, a class filled society. And then Isaiah one seventeen, just as you know, I, there there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of passages that I could refer to, but Isaiah one seventeen says, "Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow." And, and so, of all the prophets, Isaiah had the most to say about the concept of justice. In fact, he mentioned he uses the word 30 times in his in his book. And in fact, he began his 66 chapter long poetic prophecy calling his people a sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers. I mean, he just is in their face in chapter one. And he accused them of turning their backs on God, and he describes them as being one big infected sore from head to toe. That's just, that's pretty straightforward, wouldn't you say? And he was so mad at them. I don't know, mad was the right word, but he told them to quit doing their worship rituals, which were more of a burden than a blessing to God. But when he finally gets around to telling them precisely what he wanted them to do, he didn't tell them to read more of the the Bible or sing better worship songs or smash their idols, although those would have been fine things to do. Instead, he said, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Um, I mean, most of the Old Testament prophets warnings could be boiled down to two main issues idolatry and injustice if i put that positively worship the right god and treat vulnerable people rightly so you know isaiah didn't define holiness nor did uh, moses simply in pietistic terms In addition to loving God wholeheartedly, his idea of holiness included a lifestyle of of justice for the oppressed and vulnerable, which, you know, it's just what Jesus taught, right? Love God and love your neighbor. So in case I haven't been very convincing that the clash between Christ following and classism is James' main theme, you got to take a look at what comes next, and as is often the case, this next chapter division, because what comes next is chapter 2, verse 1. There's a chapter division and often in the in the Bible and some of those divisions cause more confusion than, than clarity and in this case I would say this is one of those. Because in, in the end of chapter 1 he says what true religion is and he, he says watch your mouth and watch out for orphans and widows. And and next he puts on, he puts it on stage and he, he gives us an example of how to do true religion, how to care for widows and orphans and vulnerable. He says this, I'll go to verse one, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no mistake that he's writing to Christians. He says, you must not show favoritism. That's classism, right? Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. You know this story, right? And if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and you say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Well, notice that James goes right from how we treat widows and orphans to how we treat the poor man at the door of the church. What we're talking about now is classism in the church lobby. I mean, before the rich guy and the poor guy even get past the ushers, somebody's being treated unfairly. And you don't have to get very far into the church, in other words, to see how Christians classify and segregate people into economic and ethnic and gender and social classes. I mean, you'd think it would go without saying uh, that we should check our prejudices at the church door for at least an hour of worship, but apparently it's, it's, it's not all that obvious to some. And it doesn't speak well of us, brothers and sisters, that we can't even treat people who aren't like us with dignity for one hour on Sunday mornings. I mean, in James's scenario, they didn't even direct the poor guy to the bad seats in the balcony. They gave them no seats at, the, at, at, at all. I mean, they gave him the floor. And uh, could there be any more obvious expression of classism in the church where the ushers pick out the pretty people and give the, the well-heeled members the best seats? That just sounds, it's awful. And, and if it sounds far-fetched to you, check this out. I heard of a church in America, uh, the country that supposedly believes that all people are created equal here, you know, this church televises their services And they actually seat the best-dressed, best-looking people in the camera's view. You understand what I'm saying? So best-dressed, best-looking people, they get to be on TV so that it makes the church look like that's what the church is made up of. I mean, I, I guess they just figured that people would want to attend a church full of beautiful, successful people. I mean, every time I tell this... I feel like I want to hit somebody in the face. Okay, well, I'm not violent, but but it really upsets me that any church could condescend to such a nauseating classism like that. So anyway, James says that believers, the real believers, the real ones don't show favoritism. He uses the word favoritism. In fact, this This well-used word in the New Testament means literally to receive faces. That kind of goes along with my story about the church that televises. And to receive faces, that is, when you show favoritism, you're judging people by their outward appearance. Uh, Russell Moore tells a story of a church in London that was, uh, they were putting on a, a, a huge worship event and they were using the Royal Albert Hall, and too many people signed up for it, so they had to ask Buckingham Palace for permi- permission to use the royal boxes, you know, in the balcony, I guess. And their special private, you know, balconies reserved for use by royals and heads of state and people like Nelson Mandela and the President of the United States. Uh, and they were told that they could use the boxes on the condition that they seat their most esteemed guests there. Emphasis on most esteemed guests. So they agreed, and after the event, they wrote to thank the Queen for her generosity and confessed to her that they, they, they sat the mo, their most honored guests in the boxes that happened to be a group of homeless people who wanted to attend the worship event. Evidently, Russell Moore says that they they thought that in God's eyes, the Queen of England and a homeless man are worthy of the same care and respect. That's what I'm talking about now with classism and anti-classism in the church. They got it. Well, in verse four, James says, have you not discriminated among yourselves? Uh, The Greek term there means divided yourselves up. You know that is between the haves and the have-nots. I, I like uh, the the message version that says, "Have you not segregated God's children and proved that you are judges who can't be trusted? Segregation in the Church of Jesus Christ. That, in other words, we kind of it's like we have our own Jim Crow laws. They're unwritten, but they're practiced by the church. Segregated, and not just along racial lines, but but we've created social and economic barriers between us and all kinds of other barriers to show the ones that are the haves and versus the have-nots. And James says that you're being judges with evil thoughts. And that's where this corrosive classism, you know, it begins. It's, it begins in our thoughts, in the way that we think. It's kind of mental gen, uh, judgmentalism. And, and we begin classifying one another in our minds based on social status. And like Proverbs says, as a man thinks, so is he. And so mental bigotry, you know, it eventually shows its way, uh, you know, it to, in the way that we treat each other and the way that we speak to one another and about one another see we presume that our thoughts are safe and sound inside our brains but see the but that's not the way it works we assume that we can afford to possess them you know as long as we don't act on them yet i'm telling you it's only a matter of time that that they're going to eke out in in an attitude which usually if not always is going to pave the way and pave the path for an action so it it starts in our mind then it develops an attitude and then uh, it'll come out in our mouth, and then it's going gonna, it's gonna to come out in an action. Uh, so when I try to hide my prejudices, w- rather than repent of them, they're going to seep out my pores, and eventually out my mouth and through my hands and feet. So hiding our biases, 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 I don't know how you pronounce that, our prejudices, that's not the solution Keeping it to yourself doesn't work. That's why the Bible says whoever conceals their sins doesn't prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So if you're a bigot of one sort or another, even if you suppress it and pretend like you're not, it's going to eventually show it. It's going it's to show at least to other people. And the only thing that works is to identify these you know, devilish opinions and yank them out like weeds. James, you know, he doesn't have, notice he doesn't have a beef with the guy with the gold. His beef is with the ushers who want some of that gold. He's not criticizing or condemning or judging the, the rich man. He's talking to the ushers who are assigning seats, the best seats to the rich guy. It's not the guy with the gold ring and the fine clothes that he's talking to, but to those who give preferential treatment to him. You know, it, it's the image of God that, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. said this in his, you know, I Have a Dream speech. He says it's the image of God that gives him, man and woman, a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And he, King says, we must never forget that this, forget this is a nation that, let me start again, and we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard. Precisely because every man is made in the image of God. It's, it's so. In other words, it's this image that makes us, you know, infinitely valuable to God and should be infinitely valuable to one another. It's, it's this image of God that gives us dignity. You know, remember Jesus came as a poor child, a baby of a poor family who couldn't even afford a lamb to offer at the birth of their son. Uh, Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't have a donkey of his own to ride into the city on. He didn't have a house in which to hold the Passover. So think about this. If Jesus came to your church... How many of your friends would be put off and not paying much attention? Because, you know, Jesus didn't come from the upper class. What kind of seat would your church ushers give homeless Jesus? That's that's a gnarly question. Well, Let's go to verse 5. James says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him but you have dishonored the poor is it not the rich who are exploiting you are they not the ones who are dragging you into court are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong that verse 5 where he, you know he says hasn't god chosen the poor uh, in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. It might sound like he's up on the poor and down on the rich. Um, first of all, neither he nor Jesus were saying that the wealthy and powerful can't be saved. I mean, Jesus said it. it's hard for a rich man, but he didn't say it was impossible. And, you know, obviously, uh, because he has, you know, the rich man has his needs met. And so he might think, well, what do I need God for? I I can just buy my way out of trouble. But even Paul said in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. So he's saying that at least Most of the people in the church in Corinth uh, was, you know, were made up of uh, simple folks. But he didn't. He said, "Not many, not none of you were wise or of noble birth." So, uh, but as far as God choosing the poor over the rich, I I talked about that in a previous episode, and I said that it could be said that God is partial to the poor, or sort of on the side of the poor when when they're being oppressed by the rich. In other words, he's particularly attentive to the poor and vulnerable in the same way that I said earlier that firefighters who don't spend, you know, they don't spend equal time at every house. They're partial to homes that are on fire. And I think that's that's the case here in James' mind that the rich, in, in the context that he's speaking to, are exploiting the poor by dragging them into court. I mean... It's not just a modern phenomenon where the rich, if not bribed, can you know, if not bribe the judge, at least have the money to hire the Johnny Cochranes of the legal world, and I put legal in quotes, right? But the poor have no such recourse for social justice, and and are so they're easy targets for abuse. I mean, it's the same thing where a successful mugger, he doesn't pick. Navy SEALs to to roll, but he picks out the, the you know frailest people out on the street. They the, they choose the easiest mark. Um, I have a friend in in the San Francisco Skid Row neighborhood called the Tenderloin, with whom I was talking about injustice recently, and about how evil people you know, come from all socioeconomic classes, and they, they hurt each other. You know, the poor hurt each other, and the rich hurt each other, and the rich hurt the poor, and the poor hurt the rich. He agreed, but then he pointed out that the rich and the powerful do more damage in a society than the poor. And I I said, well, how so? He said, because they have more power over people than the poor. It's not that the rich are more, he said. they're. It's not that they're inherently more evil than the poor, but they have more opportunity to hurt more people through their, you know, corporations and businesses and political clout. So I had to agree. See, James says that their classism, he says it dishonors the poor man and blasphemes God. I mean, those are two very good reasons to avoid classism. It dishonors the poor and blasphemes God. You've dishonored the poor. You've, you've treated him disrespectively. Uh, you, you don't acknowledge the inherent dignity of the poor man and, and treat him like a second-class citizen. And, you know, in classless Christianity, there's no such thing as a second-class because there's no class. <laughs> um, 1 Peter 2.17, Peter says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. Show proper respect to everyone. And Paul says in Romans 12, honor one another above yourselves. Show honor. So let me get, you know, personal for a second and ask you, what? why is it that most churches' leadership teams are made up of people of the more socioeconomic successful class? I mean, to say nothing about them being predominantly Caucasian. But how many times is the McDonald's employee church member or the poor widow in the church chosen for the church board? I mean, what are we saying by that? Are we saying that economic success is an earmark of a good spiritual leader? do Do we think that we can draw some straight line between success, I'm going to put that in quotes, and spirituality, or between wealth and leadership qualification. Yeah, I better just leave that for now. Go move on. So James says, is it not the rich who are exploiting you and dragging you into court? You know, it's entirely possible that James is referring to some particular Phenomenon in their particular context, and that there was a lot of that going on in and to the church. But you you have to admit that we can't brush this off as just some first century occurrence. I mean, those with means, the rich, exploiting those without means, the poor, in the legal system isn't anything new. I mean, the term, in fact, the term exploiting is used in, in Acts 10, where it talks about the, the oppression of the devil, exploitation, oppression of the devil. Same word. And in the Old Testament prophets, it's used often. One version translates it: uh, it, it, isn't it the rich who grind you down? Uh, In fact, I mentioned the Old Testament prophets, Amos 8 says, hear this, you who trample on the needy, that's that same word of exploiting the needy, um, and do away with the poor of the land. Jeremiah 7, 6 says, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, and then he goes on to say, then it'll be good for you. But do not do that, in other words. But oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. And Ezekiel 18.12 says, He he oppresses the poor and the needy. He commits robbery. He does not return what he took in pledge. He looks to the idols. He does detestable things. Notice the, the company that oppression keeps doing detestable things, committing robbery, doesn't return what he took in pledge. He oppresses the poor and the needy. And so the riches of the rich give them power. And we all know what power does. It corrupts. And of course, I'm not saying that all the rich oppress the poor by any means, nor is James saying that. There are and always have been many, many, many wealthy people who appreciate their success and leverage their their success for the good of of the many. But historically, the general rule of thumb is that the rich often get rich by depriving the poor. And James is going to talk about that in chapter five. I mean, the poor and the vulnerable, they're the easiest to deprive since they don't have any power to resist. Riches, you know, puts the rich in a position of power and uh, for good uh, or for evil. And so wealthy people and nations can use their station generously or greedily. And so we all know that money isn't the corrupting force in the world, but it's the love of money that is the root of many kinds of evil. And then James asks, are they, that is the rich bullies he's talking about, are they not the ones who are blaspheming the the noble name of him to whom you belong? Blasphemy, he calls it. Blasphemy. I mean... Last time I heard a Christian use that word, it wasn't about the rich abusing the poor. Last time I heard it, blasphemy referred to, it wasn't about exploitation of the, of the vulnerable. You know, I mean, what is blasphemous behavior? Ask that question to any number of Christians, and I, I think you're going to get a list of sinful activities like uh, fornication, in some cases people will say gay marriage, or cussing God out. You know, blasphemy. But in this case, what James calls blasphemous is favoritism. The kind that's going on inside the church. I mean, you don't often see discrimination on the Christian Christian's list of typical bad behaviors. And in this case, he's talking about the rich looking down on the poor and giving the, their other rich the perks in the church those who oppress the poor and hoard society's perks, they defame the name of God, the noble name of God. They spit on God's name. I mean, think about that. The third commandment of the 10 says, thou shalt not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And so, it's blasphemy to do that. So taking advantage of the vulnerable breaks the third command. This may or may not really be the best place to take a pause, but let's do it for time's sake. Next time, we're going to pick it up at verse 8, uh, which says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So, okay, I know this message from, from James can be pretty intense, but I hope you're going to stick with it and let the Spirit speak to you about you know, its application in your own life and, and in your own worldview. You know, search me and, and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me, the psalmist said. <laughs> so let me just conclude with my favorite Francis- Franciscan benediction. Goes like this, at least part of it goes like this. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half truths, and superficial relationships so that you will live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, for freedom, for peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer pain. Rejection, hunger, and war, so that you may re- reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain to joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done to, to bring justice and kindness to all our children and to the poor. Amen. Let's go, let's go.